Well, we had a guest service this morning, and uh, I want you to imagine this evening a different type of guest service. Uh, We've got some visitors. They're invisible. Uh, We can't see them. They are a group of aliens who have come to St. Peter's for the very first time. They've traveled all across the galaxy, and they've decided to, of all the places in planet Earth, they've decided to come here this evening. Um, What do you think would surprise those aliens, those special guests that we can't see, so we we don't need to freak out, okay? What do you think would surprise them the most? Uh, What would would strike them about what we're doing this evening? Uh, I wonder if uh, the thing that would strike them the most would be the thing that we've uh, just done, just before I prayed. I think singing... I think singing would leave them with lots of questions. I think they'd have been watching on, they'd been, think, they'd been thinking, why have those beings, why have they sort of stood up? And why have they opened their mouths? And what is that that's been coming out of their mouths? And who were those people over there? And what is that noise? What's it all about? Uh, whenever you find a group of Christians uh, together, wherever they live, whatever they look like, pretty soon they start singing. And they maybe do it in different styles. They do it with varying degrees of ability. It might be planned. It might be spontaneous. But at some point, they start to sing. We sing at concerts. We sing at sporting events. Some of us sing in the shower. Why do we sing at church? And to help us think about that, we're going to think about this uh, chapter, Exodus 15. It's one of the great songs in the Old Testament. And really, my hope by the end of this sermon is that it will be stuck in your head. Stuck in your head. And as we look at it tonight, just three headings. Here's the first heading, simple headings this evening. Here's the first, the singers. The singers. And we meet them at the beginning and the end. Then Moses, verse 1, and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And then verse 20, then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine and sang... And so this song, it's, it's a, we could call it a family affair, and yet it's a song that all of God's people are called to sing. And yet, uh, in one sense, these verses, this part of chapter 15, in one sense, it's totally redundant. It's totally unnecessary. And if you think about it, as we read it, um, there's almost nothing in this chapter that we don't know already. Uh, There's almost, if we've been reading Exodus, there's almost nothing new here about God, nothing new about Pharaoh, nothing new about the Egyptians. Moses could very easily have have, have cut this song out. He could have very easily jumped from the end of chapter 14 all the way uh, in your Bibles to chapter 15, verse 22. Uh, Why did he include this song? Well, chapter 14 and chapter 15, in a sense, they're they're describing this same event. Uh, Chapter 14 is narrative, isn't it? Chapter 15 is is poetry, it's a song. And in one sense, what that does is it shows us the beauty of the Bible. The Bible is uh, a a book with different genres. Um, It's uh, creative, it's interesting for us to read. And yet it's even more than that. This song, this passage, it's here... It's here to engage our affections. It's here to stir our emotions. 
See, this uh, song, what it does uh, for us tonight is it reminds us that God wants more than simply our dutiful obedience. God wants more than that. God deserves more than that. God wants our hearts. God wants our hearts. And I think we get a little glimpse of that in the opening words. Just look how personal uh, the beginning of this song is. I will sing to the Lord, verse 1. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. So God is not just my strength. We like that idea, don't we? God is not just my salvation. We, we like to think about that too. No, God is also my song. My song. And this is really important. Sometimes, uh, perhaps it's especially important for Christians in the kind of church we are. Sometimes Christians are told, all you need to know is the truth. Uh, often churches like ours, we, we value thinking, don't we? Reflection, you know, studying. And we're right to do that. And yet we can take that kind of thing to a, a, an unhealthy extreme. An imbalance. We can get to the point where we have a kind of bullet point Christianity. Where we think, if I just know the right doctrines, if I just know the summaries, well that's all God cares about. But that's not all God cares about, is it? No, we have in this chapter, we have, we could call it the marriage of theology with emotion. Now, in any, in, in any relationship, if it's a healthy relationship, uh, you and I, we want to know the other person better, don't we? Uh, we reveal something of our heart to them, and they do the same back. And that is exactly the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. God wants to have that kind of relationship with all of us. And one of the things you see in this song is that it's not simply addressed to God. The opening words of chapter 15, they seem directed at the singer. The, the singer is speaking kind of uh, to himself, isn't he? I will sing to the Lord. It's very like the opening to Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And in verses 2 to 5, they don't just seem, uh, verses 2 to 5 don't just seem like they're addressed to God, but others listening on, don't they? It's almost as if the, the, the singer is kind of recounting what happened in chapter 14. And as these events in chapter 14, as they're described, as they're talked about, it's only really in verse 6 that God is kind of addressed directly. As God begins to be addressed in that way. And I think that teaches us something about our worship. I think it's right to say that our, our worship primarily is uh, this way. It's uh, vertical, isn't it? Uh, what God thinks about the words we sing, that's the, the most important thing about our worship. But our worship, it does something else, doesn't it? Our worship builds others up. And you and I, we know this, don't we? Maybe there's been some real tragedy in your life, 
and you've come to church and then someone like me has stood up and said, it's time to sing. And you can't sing. And you've got a lump in your throat. And you've got uh, tears in your eyes. And all you can really do is, is whisper the words. By the way, I think that kind of singing, I think that kind of singing is probably singing that God loves the most, isn't it? And yet when you hear other people singing, well, it keeps you going, doesn't it? Their voices, their voices remind you that God is the same. And I think that's something for us to remember as a church family. We're quite a big church. It can be quite difficult to know other people in this church uh, well. But one of the ways we can love one another one of the ways we can build one another up is to sing and to sing as clearly and as loudly and as joyfully as we can. We are singing to God, but what our singing can do is often carry along our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the singers. That's not the only thing we see in this chapter, though. Look at the song, the song. That's the second heading, the song. Uh, last week, I chose a song at the end of our uh, service that I was having to email Colin about during the week, and that was because it's a song that can be sung in two different ways. Okay, so you can sing this particular song that we had at the end of the service last week. We, you can sing it as two verses, or you can sing it as four verses, and I think if you're going to sing it as four, you need an organ, all right? So maybe we need to, I don't know, maybe we need to start an organ fund, right? Controversial opinion, okay? The music changes uh, how you divide up the words. And as we look at this song, there are different ways we could divide it up. Uh, we could divide it up in, in terms of thinking about who it's addressed to, but there are other ways. We could think about the different people mentioned. So verses 4 to 12 are all about God's enemies. Verses 3 to 16 are really about the nations. Verses 17 to 21 are about God's people. That's, that's one way we could divide it up. We could divide the song in two. So we could talk about the people who are humbled and the, and the God is exalted. But I want to divide it another way. I want to divide it this way, the past and the future. The past and the future. Because in this song, God's people sing about what God has done, but they also sing about what God will do. Now let's think about those two things. Let's look back first. The Lord is a man of war, verse 3. The Lord is his name. Uh, the picture in these verses, as the, the, the song progresses, it's, it's of a God who has fought for his people. And God, in this song, he's compared to a warrior. He's compared to a warrior who has defeated a great foe. And I think the really striking thing here is the way that God's people seem to be encouraged to revel in that victory. To revel in it. Now, when you're watching uh, sport on TV, uh, one of the things that fans love, isn't it, the, the best moments when they're, when they're put into slow motion. 
And so maybe it's, I don't know, like the try or the goal or just the, the really great shot on Wimbledon centre court. It looks even better, doesn't it, when it's in slow motion. And in fact, in Wimbledon, they, they sometimes do that with the celebrations, don't they? Kind of in slow motion, kind of like, like this. And uh, the expressions on the, the players' faces, they can be really funny, can't they? And in a sense, I think that's what's happening here. Look at the way the events of chapter 14 are described. If you look from verse 4 down, Moses could have said all this in one sentence. And yet Moses doesn't do that, does he? Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and host, he's cast into the sea. It doesn't end there. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. And then there's more. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Then there's a more kind of general couple of verses that speak of God's power. But then, verse 8, we're, we're back at the sea again. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. It's, it's almost as if we're reliving what's happening. Then verse 9, the, the victory, it kind of seems to, to hang in the balance, doesn't it? The arrogance of, of Egypt on display. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide. I will draw. Oh, no, you won't. Because as soon as the Egyptians look like they're about to win, we hear verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then the response, it's like the cheer of the crowd. It's like the cheer of the crowd as they watch the the try again. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds. See, God's people are, are celebrating, and they're celebrating a great victory. And yet, if you look at verses 14 to 16, the amazing thing is, Moses says, the events of the Exodus, they caused the surrounding nations to fear as well. Now, you and I, we've not experienced a, a military victory like this, have we? Um, but we know what it's like to be freed from oppression, And we know uh, verses like this, Colossians 1. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Or Galatians 4. When the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And to be a Christian is to know this. To be a Christian is to, to be someone who's been liberated. And it's why we sing, isn't it? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So as we sing, as God's people, we look back. We look back to the cross. We look back to an event that happened in time and space. But that's not the only way we look, is it? You and I, as Christians, as we sing, we also look ahead. And we see this in verse 17. Look at it with me. You will bring them in. You will plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. 
Now you'll see there a reference to a mountain. And so, of course, lots of people, when they hear that and they're reading Exodus, they, they immediately they, they think of Sinai. And yet, think about Sinai. Uh, God's people didn't stay very long at Sinai, did they? And yet, look what verse 17 says. You will plant them on this mountain. Seems like there's something else in view. This passage, it points to the end of the Exodus, end of Exodus. It's what we read about when we come to all the, the regulations about the tabernacle in uh, chapter 25 to the end. God is going to come and God is going to dwell with his people. And yet what we see here is, is a pointer to another day. It's a pointer to this verse, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And yet it points even further than that. This verse, it looks forward to the new creation. It points to what Isaiah says in chapter 2, when many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. This song, this verse, it points us to the day when the earth will be filled with the glory of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. When in the words of verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And that's something, friends, tonight to sing about, to remember, to thank God for. Uh, That's something to refocus on It's something to refocus on even when life is good. You and I, we have a future. God is going to come. God is going to dwell with his people. God is going to reign forever. I think lots of us were quite struck, weren't we, by uh, Simon R. Scott, his talks at the weekend away. Maybe you can remember the question that he asked. Uh, Here it is. Do you ever daydream about heaven? See, it's so easy to forget, isn't it? It's so easy to get caught up in life here and now. I think especially in the run-up to Christmas. And so tonight, let's pray for one another. Let's pray that we'd remember the future. Let's pray we'd remember the future God has for us. And let's sing about it as well. And that takes me to my final point this evening. The singers, the song... Here's the last point, the encores, the encores. I think at this time of the year, one of the things that uh, people seem to love and loathe in kind of equal measure is uh, the the Christmas pop songs. And we start hearing them, don't we, in the, the supermarket on November the 1st. And some of them really stick in our heads, don't they? I only have to say the words, last Christmas. Uh, The extremely well-educated here have no idea what I'm talking about. But this song is one that God's people were to come back to. They were to sing it again and again. And it was a song they were to keep on singing. And I think we get a little hint of that, don't we? In verse 21, there's a kind of encore from Miriam. She starts singing again, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea see God wants to make a big song and dance 
about this deliverance. God wants his people to remember it. And yet all through the Bible, there are, there are examples of this. A friend of mine, he, I heard him say in a sermon once, um, he thinks the Bible is a bit like a musical. And I know that musicals are um, they're not everyone's cup of tea, are they? But as you watch the story uh, unfold, as you read the Bible, people are sort of popping up and starting to sing. And it's like this. It's like Exodus 15. It's like Judges 5. When Barak and Deborah, they sing after God has destroyed the Canaanites. It's like Samuel 18, where women sing to celebrate the victories of David and Saul. There was singing when the temple was built. There was singing when God's people returned from exile. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our tongues were filled with songs of joy. And when Jesus came, there was singing as well, wasn't there? Mary sang, my soul magnifies the Lord. Zechariah sang, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. The angels sang, glory to God in the highest heaven. Simeon praised when he held uh, Jesus in his arms. And Jesus sang. Jesus sang. See, maybe you can remember the Last Supper. Matthew tells us that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. As Jesus went to his death, he was singing. As Jesus went to the cross to set us free from slavery to our sin, he was going there singing. And most likely he would have sung part or or all of Psalms 113 to 118. These were the Psalms that were most closely associated with the Passover. And that means our Lord Jesus, in all likelihood, he would have sung these words, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's so poignant, isn't it? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Friends, the Bible is it's a songbook, and it's a songbook right to the very end. Because in Revelation 5, what do we read? The lamb is praised because he was slain. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal. By your blood you ransom people for God. In Revelation 7, a great multitude of people sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. But come with me in your Bibles to Revelation 15. Revelation 15. And uh, it's easy to remember the connection because Exodus 15, Revelation 15. What's happening in Revelation 15? Well, in a sense, it's as if the words of our song in chapter 15 of Exodus, it's as if they're picked up, they're kind of updated, they're expanded upon. Maybe you can see as you look down, verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts 
have been revealed. And all of this singing, all of this singing all through the whole Bible, where does it take us to? It takes us to chapter 19, and it takes us to the hallelujahs. All the hallelujahs, if you look down at chapter 19, all these great hallelujahs before the marriage supper of the Lamb. And yet, friends, the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is, is that when that day comes, when all of God's people are are singing, it won't just be us who are singing. It won't just be God's people who are singing. We're about to sing a carol, and it's a, a carol that's based on Psalm 98. And it's Joy to the World. And it was written by Isaac Watts. And what do we learn at the end of Psalm 98? Well, to think back uh, to musicals again at risk of sounding a little bit cheesy, we learn that one day the hills will be alive with the sound of music. And not just the hills. You know, the return of Jesus, it will be so glorious that the seas, the rivers... Scripture says, they'll clap, they'll sing before the Lord. One day God's good creation will sing for joy as its creator returns. And our privilege tonight, our privilege, friends, is to practice and to get ready and to join the praise. And so let's do that in a moment. But before we do that, let's pray together. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away.